I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The yeas are 230. The nays are 197. Present is 1. Article 1 is adopted. The, que- the question is on adoption of Article 2. The question is on the adoption of Article 2. Those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, nay. The ayes have it. The ayes have it. And with that, Donald J. Trump entered the history books as the third U.S. president to be impeached by the House of Representatives. It came after eight hours of floor debate in which Democrats and Republicans duked it out, parroting the same talking points over and over, parsing the same evidence the Congress and much of Washington has been obsessing over for the past two and a half months. And while the outcome was foreordained, the road ahead seemed somewhat unsettled, with Speaker Pelosi dangling the idea that the House may not immediately forward the articles of impeachment to the Senate for a trial until she is assured it will be a fair process. But with the country this divided and the Congress this polarized, what constitutes fairness? And will there be a political cost to the Democrats for impeaching the president and then gumming up the work so the Senate can't acquit him? We'll dissect what happens next with two Yahoo News reporters who have been covering the impeachment drama. And we'll talk to historian Tim Neftali about how Trump's impeachment compares to those in the past on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Daniel Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we began skullduggery nearly two years ago talking about the anniversary of the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal, which, of course, led to the last impeachment of Bill Clinton. And here we are, December 2019, looking at another impeachment of Trump. The question is, will it play out the same way Clinton's did? Will it be remembered by history in a similar way that Clinton's was? Or will it be viewed as something else? Well, the story isn't over yet, but it seems to me... You know, what's that? What's the line, the Karl Marx line, history repeats itself versus tragedy? Then it's farce. Then it's farce. And look, this is serious stuff, right? The conduct was very serious and shocking in a lot of ways. But the reaction, the country's reaction, and the president's reaction, and the tribal partisanship in our culture, and Trump's brazenness, and his ability to, to act with impunity— 
kind of dilutes the whole thing. It doesn't seem big. And I think, you know, we've got Alex Nazarian here who wrote about this yesterday in his coverage of, of the proceedings themselves. It felt a little bit like, you know, the sort of Seinfeld impeachment, right? You know, a show about <laughs> nothing. And now, wait and a no, second, no, about but, nothing? No, there of course not. You're not getting my... serious but, issues but, Absolutely, here absolutely, table. absolutely. I, that's not my point. My point is... It doesn't feel, for all the reasons I talked about before, it doesn't feel like it has the kind of gravitas that impeachment should have. And that is, that's sad. And I think it says a lot about where we are as a country and the extent that we are in in decline. Well, that's very cosmic of you, <laughs> the country in decline. And by the way, your, uh, your quote from Marx actually reminds me of my favorite quote about history, which is not from Karl Marx. It's from Stanley Baldwin, who was the uh, prime minister of uh, Great Britain in the 1930s, who said, history doesn't repeat itself. Historians repeat each other, um, which is a good quote when we're having a historian Tim Neftali on later. But let's get to serious matters with Alex Nazarian, John Ward. You guys have been you guys covering, there. You, you, yeah, you've been covering this every step of the way. By the way, I just want to say on that point I was making, and then I think I want to hear Alex yeah. talk about this because he was there and he was kind of soaking it up yesterday. What did Trump say at his rally in Michigan when this was happening? Doesn't feel like we're being impeached, right? Right. And to a lot of the country, they probably agree with that. Yeah. Although I got to say, Trump seems pretty obsessed with uh, yeah. being impeached. Uh, he That's may uh, protest if all he wants. But uh, John Ward and Alex Nazarian, welcome back to Skullduggery. John, what happens from here? Well, we're all waiting to see what Nancy Pelosi does. And she said last night that she's not going to send over the articles immediately to the Senate, which came as a huge surprise. To a lot of people, it had been bubbling up from sort of the portions of the Democratic Party, the more left-leaning members. And I think in some ways, Pelosi and some other allies of hers decided to kind of take a breath and not send over the articles immediately and kind of see what happens. And I think we're but in that. To what so, yeah, yeah. Explain, what, what, explain why she's doing this, because it sounds like well, sounds a little think, weird. She's holding right. the Senate trial hostage uh, I can, or the, the, the articles of impeachment ho hostage to get the right. trial. I can give wants. you three reasons. One, there are people in her party who really want her to do this, and I think she wants to figure out, like, how do I handle that? To what end? Okay, right. The two political benefits, potentially, for Democrats. One, you put pressure on Republican senators by hanging this issue out there of, we want witnesses, why won't you call witnesses in the Senate? That's always been done in impeachments before. And you're just trying to get this over with without a fair trial. You're trying to hide the facts from the American people. Second, you do create some friction, maybe, between Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, and President Trump. Trump wants, has said he wants witnesses and definitely wants acquittal. And so, you know, McConnell would probably be fine if Pelosi never sent him the articles. He doesn't really care and he can probably use that against her but you can see a scenario in which trump is getting on the phone with mitch mcconnell and saying mitch we got to get these articles over here which puts pressure on mcconnell to potentially come to the bargaining table with chuck schumer in the senate and say okay let's play ball on the issue of witnesses so first of all pelosi did seem to walk it back a little uh in her thursday morning press conference saying well we're waiting to see what kind of trial it's going to be so we can figure out 
about how many managers we need to send over. That's a um, procedural punt. You know, that's that's right. something that's she could do that today. She doesn't need to wait for the second. Well, there right. are others in in the leadership. You know, uh, Jim Clyburn, who's I think number three in the leadership, who's said he doesn't think you know until they um, McConnell agrees to witnesses and agrees to a fair trial. They won't send those, or they shouldn't send those articles of impeachment over, even if that means never having a trial. So that's he said that. That's the number three. The number two, Hoyer said he hopes they don't. He hopes they do send them over. Both Hoyer and Clyburn said they have no idea what Pelosi is going to do. Chris Van Hollen, a senator who was a lieutenant of Pelosi's in the House, told me this morning that he thinks they should have a fair trial. He's He's been an advocate for this idea of withholding articles, but he, he also said he thinks they should have a trial. They should not withhold them indefinitely. And he indicated to me that he got wind of this idea kind of bubbling up from the left and wanted to kind of redirect it in a more positive so, direction. Okay. So Alex, is this just going to look to the American people like a whole bunch of Washington gamesmanship that it's not really serious, you know, and it's just going to remind them of how... This whole thing is, you know, a farce, I mean, for a lot of people out there. I mean, how does this play out there in the country? My thought about why Pelosi did this is that she worried that a Senate trial without witnesses, without any significant document production, would itself be a farce and would itself seem like the kind of Washington taking care of its own, doing what it always does, that people outside of Washington dislike. Whereas at least asking for a real trial makes it seem like this impeachment is serious and they're taking it seriously and they're going to do right by the Constitution. And that's how she's framing it, whether we believe that's genuine. What is the actual process, by the way, of what, you know, what does it mean to say the House won't send articles of impeachment um, over to the Senate? What do they actually have to do? The impeachment managers, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, the impeachment managers eventually have to walk those, but present those articles to the Senate. They have to vote to release those, to transmit the articles to the Senate, right? But look, here, here is the, the contradiction in the Democrats' position on this. You covered those many hours of debate this week in which... I heard the Democrats saying time and time again, they had made a compelling case. The evidence was overwhelming. It's all in our report. It's from our testimony. If the evidence is so compelling as is, why do you need additional witnesses to have a trial? The Democrats said the evidence is all there. Wouldn't you want to hear from John Bolton? Of course I'd want to hear from John Bolton. I'd want to hear from Mick Mulvaney, and I'd want to hear from Mike Pompeo. I'd even want to hear from uh, uh, Vice President Pence. But the fact is, the Democrats could have gone to court on this issue, and they did. Remember, yes, they went we- to court on Charles Kupperman, who was Bolton's deputy, and it went to a, it was assigned to a federal judge. This was a subpoena for Kupperman's testimony. Bolton sort of latched onto that and said he was uh, you know wanted to see how his lawyer said they wanted to see how the judge ruled. And Mulvaney yeah. tried to latch R- onto it as latch well. Onto it. But but what happened? They got a Republican judge, Richard Leone, who set a hearing schedule. And then Schiff sees that oh my God, we could get an adverse ruling from this guy. And what do they do? They withhold the subpoena. They withdraw the subpoena. If the subpoena 
had not if they had not done that and Leon ruled against them, they would have had an adverse ruling from a federal judge that would have completely undercut Article Two obstruction of Congress because a federal judge would have ratified the position of the president. So rather than risk undermining the article they were planning, obstruction of Congress, they withdrew that subpoena. Mike, here's how I would argue, and I'm not saying that Pelosi's strategy argue. is a sound one, but I am trying to understand it. It's that those very long reports from the House, from the House Judiciary Committee, and the Intelligence Committee, those are like grand jury reports. And now we're going to trial, and, right. and trials are not tried over reports; they're tried over evidence, and they're tried with witnesses taking the stand. And, and right. I, I believe that is the core of the argument. And. And the Constitution says the Senate shall hold a trial, right. not the Senate shall vote on a report. And I, I, I think that well, is— Well, here's what I think it is. I mean, they really want and need those witnesses. They don't have, like in the Watergate case where, you know, they had John Dean. You know, they had, you know, a lot of the president's men— who were helping their case. And you know, in this case, they mostly had sort of foreign service officers, some, yes, uh, Sondland, some uh, Trump appointees, but not really close ones. So they really want Bolton. They really want Mulvaney. And they don't have any Senate Republicans who are with them yet. Maybe they'll get one or two, they had enough, but that's what they need. They and so they need witnesses. these witnesses. They had enough witnesses to get this through the House on a purely partisan vote, but well, not enough but they, witnesses but to If you were there, Mike, you would be doing the same thing because yeah. you're trying to prosecute this case effectively. So that's what you do. But they're in a bind because they want those witnesses, but they want them before February. They want them before the Iowa caucuses. Well, that would seem... Also... You know, it's still unclear whether Bolton, Mulvaney at all would testify even with a Senate subpoena. The, you know, there are still the privilege claims out there. They could well, this could well end up in court in the right. court anyway. That could drag on for well, once you're a testifying. While. Well, wait, well, yes, but really? once you're actually agree to testify, well, they testify, agree to testify, then you can't litigate it because the federal courts have no say. So part of this also is just that well, the Democratic message is shifting as they go from majority to minority. In the majority, your obligation is to put on the case. In the minority, the Democratic object here is to basically portray the Republicans as hiding from the public. And they probably know that they're un very unlikely to get witnesses in this trial. So, But let's actually talk about the mechanics of that, because McConnell can say as much as he wants, no witnesses. But at the end of the day, he is going to have to put it up to a vote. And it's a simple 51. majority. It's 51. So they have... 53, 53 to 47 to 47. So you would need what? Three defections, right? You yep. need three defections. So well, this three would be 50, 50. I mean, right. you'd need, okay. you'd need four. Actually. Right. So then four, right? So what? Well, what, I'm not sure you would, I guess to pass something. I mean, yeah. Pence can't come in and break a tie. In this no, situation. not on this one. Right. He, he would be. So then what happens? The chief justice rules. Say. Uh, yeah. But um, we need a so parliamentarian. That's, so that's part of the strategy here is to put pressure on these on these Senate Republicans for their to, to force a debate about the fairness of the trial, whether there ought to be witnesses to get some of these Senate Republicans to maybe have to go on record on this question. Right. Correct. Um, and then when you actually start the Senate trial, that question of witnesses will come well, up look, and maybe it, you'll it get seems, a It seems to me that McConnell's you know main objective here is to prevent a vote that forces Collins, McSally, and Gardner 
the three three vulnerable Senate Republicans from having to vote against witnesses against hearing all the evidence against the president. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not so sure it's going to be so easy for him to avoid a vote, can he? And here's, I just want to step back for, for, for a sec from the mechanics and the politics to something that Schiff said, Adam Schiff said yesterday, which is we want a fair Senate trial, and the American people should want that, and the president should want that. He said something to that effect, and I think that we should all want a thorough trial so that whatever the Senate ultimately votes, whether to convict or to acquit, we believe that is the right decision. And we can sort of we can have that cathartic moment where we can say, however, this ends, this ends now. When I just, I just don't think we get that without witnesses, without document production, without those documents from the State Department and from the Office of Management and Budget about the holds on Ukrainian aid. So we should, I think we should all want this. And by the way, this is, I mean, there have only been two impeachment trials, but that precedent was set. There were witnesses. In, Although in, let's not overdo the witnesses in the Clinton trial. Okay. It was, there was a, a handful of, they were not in the chamber. of depositions that were taken, not in front of all the senators. Uh, I think Sid Blumenthal was one of them. Monica Lewinsky was another. Um, well, kind of the, a key witness. Well, Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky was. Yeah. Yes, Lewinsky was. Was, uh, was she uh, involved somehow? I don't know. <laughs> hey, uh, Dan, just right. to, to interject here, you asked earlier about whether the House has to vote to send the articles to the Senate. Right. And I was literally getting conflicting information over my text messages as you were asking that. But I just got confirmation from Pelosi's office. Yes, they do need to. They do need to vote. So back to my question, how does uh, McConnell avoid a vote on whether to have witnesses? Because it seems to me that's the the most critical immediate question. You strike a deal with 51 Republicans or 53 to vote as a majority on a package of rules that doesn't include witnesses. But I think that really That's does put you're some saying, of these vulnerable Republicans yeah. in a box well, I, I don't, because yeah, I don't if think you're you can avoid voting that. against holding hearing witnesses at a trial crucial witnesses, that's a difficult vote for some of these uh, Senate Republicans. Let me add one thing here. What we're witnessing today is two of the shrewdest operators in Washington, and that's, of course, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell going head-to-head as they rarely do. Right. Uh, and, and impeachment is one of those times when the two chambers, the lower chamber of the House and the upper chamber of the Senate, really do collide in this really interesting way. And, of course, that collision is being led by Pelosi on one side and McConnell on the other. And that's just really a rarity. And part of the reason we're debating this is because they're both so good. They're such good tacticians. We, we Although give some credit to Schumer, who really started this. Yes. With his uh, imploring McConnell. Another wily operator. Yes. It's not clear to me that Pelosi's in control of this process, to be honest. Well, why not? Uh, because I, I didn't get the sense that she really was in total control of her talking points after the vote when she said she would withhold the articles it was clear that her communications director was trying to get her out of there she wasn't able to answer direct questions and that continued today 
And yeah, she refused to answer questions at the morning press conference. And I'm, uh, you know, they've just impeached the president. And she, and she says, well, that's all I'm going to say about this. Well, she you went know, on and on and, so, and asked the yeah. press corps, do you, she Anything. listed like eight things. Yeah. Ask me about this. Ask me about this. And, and the press room was silent because we all wanted did. answers to this question. Right. Just to uh, take you back to the actual debate on the floor of the House, Alex, you were covering it. Give us a sense of what that was like, the mood in the chamber, what the interaction was among the members. The mood was oddly slack. And this goes back to what Danny was saying at the opening of the show. People were joking, people were looking at their phones, people were getting up, going to you know lunch. There wasn't the tension, for example, of I remember being in the Kavanaugh hearing room in the Senate, of course, and the tension was incredible. Nobody moved because you didn't hours. know the outcome. You didn't know the outcome. You saw that Jeff Flake was rattled, and you didn't know why, and you didn't know why suddenly the Democrats were getting up and going into the cloakroom. You didn't know what Grassley was thinking. You didn't know what Feinstein was thinking. Of course, the, and rem remember Jeff Flake was confronted by that uh, protester, the woman right. who was a victim of sexual mm -hmm. assault. That was a truly dramatic moment that changed things, at least for a while. Yesterday, everybody knew how the day was going to end with the president impeached on two articles. The only question really was, would we all make it home for dinner? And uh, I had dinner at about midnight, so uh, right. no. Well, well, I ask, the I the Washington Post reporters got into a little trouble last yes, night. Yes, they did. You want to tell us about that? Yes, well, this is one of those uh, episodes when uh, the right, whether fairly or not, believes it has uncovered evidence of media bias, and that's because some Washington Post reporters went out to the Dubliner, which... Uh, as I'm sure Mike and I spent did. most of my 20s at the Dubliner. Yes, it's a it's a well-known Washington pub near Capitol Hill, and uh, one of the reporters took a photograph that said we're celebrating impeachment, like Christmas for uh, impeachment, and that had been a meme on the internet in the days preceding the impeachment vote, and then, and then stupidly put it on social media, and then it was seized on first by Mike Cernovich, who is a um, <laughs> A right-wing conspiracy nut, firebrand. I was going yes, a, to say, a, okay. a uh, tribune of objective uh, journalism, <laughs> Mike Cernovich. Uh, so th that would have been enough. But then Stephanie Grisham, the White House communications director, tweeted about it, and then Brad Parscale. I saw this morning the Trump re-election campaign manager had tweeted about it. So what was clearly just a bunch of reporters just enjoying a beer and a burger after. Or maybe a veggie burger or something else. I don't want to. I know, doubt it. Uh, <laughs> enjoying a night out after an incredibly long day became uh, sort of for the president's supporters a lesson in just how biased the media is. Are there any pictures of you having dinner last night? No, I had salmon uh, by myself. And well, if you were eating over. a veggie burger, yeah. that would indeed be incriminating. I think, yeah. I, I want to ask uh, Ward about a piece that he wrote, and this goes back to Nancy Pelosi's tactics. And there was this idea that, you know, the, the word came, went out to uh, the Democratic conference, uh, no gloating, no spiking the football. The tone has to be more in sorrow than anger. This is a sad day. How did that play out? How sincere was that? To what extent was that real versus tactical? Talk about that. 
I think the line in that piece that I kind of workshopped the most was this idea that strategy is not mutually exclusive with sincerity. Mm-hmm. I think there was both. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, depending on who you are in Congress, you may have varying degrees of one or the other. I think some of these members who are freshmen members from swing districts, I talked to Max Rose, who's a combat veteran from Afghanistan, and he was just aghast that you would even speak of strategy about you know how to conduct yourselves during an impeachment. He has that luxury because he doesn't have to think about you know 435 members or a majority of 233 and how to you know drive that ship or steer that ship. But that's a tough vote for him. Impeachment. Yeah. He it voted is. for impeachment. It is. But he could him, lose his job over it. it. Like exactly. All exactly. of those other national security Democrats. And even for him, there is, you know, political considerations. But yeah, I mean, if you're Nancy Pelosi and you've got Rashida Tlaib going out there and selling t-shirts about, we're going to impeach the mother. I don't know if we can cut. Is this a fan? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's uh, motherfucker is what we, she said. We can say motherfucker. Yes. yes. We you can did. say motherfucker. Yeah. So, I'll oh, be the wow. I'll, I'll be the Boy Scout here. Uh, uh-huh. If you if you've got her going out there and saying that, then you know you want to make sure that that does not become a, a habit and a pe- because that comment itself, which was from January, I think, was raised January multiple, of, of yeah it was this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah. raised multiple was times on right. the floor by the Republicans. I mean, right. every moment Republicans got even a hint. This is the best one. The RNC tweeted out and then emailed to reporters a clip of Jerry Nadler chuckling on the house floor for like a half a second in a he was chuckling towards doug collins it was completely innocent and they sent that out as if that was you know evidence of doug collins being his republican counterpart on the judiciary committee as if that was evidence of like partisan jubilee over impeachment there there were hugs there were high fives i was looking down at the pit even though they told us not to lean over the parapet of the press gallery there were celebrations they were muted but, you know, you saw Ilan Omar um, and other freshmen sort of hugging. Member of the squad. Member of the squad. You, there was some, but it was, it was muted, John. You're absolutely correct. And I, I, I certainly think someone like Max Rose, a national security Democrat, or Alyssa Slotkin, also in that group, they definitely understand the, the severity of what happened. Let me ask a question about, I guess you would call it political courage. I'd like to know what both of you gentlemen think of this. So we've all read about the conservative or moderate Democrats in those Trump districts um, who just came in in this last election and are now took this tough impeachment vote. And many of them may be booted out because of that vote. Was that just principle on their part? And then it raises the question of if those people are principled and are willing to take a tough vote like that, talking about Slotkin, talking about Max Rose, talking about Spamberger in Virginia and their handful of others, why shouldn't we expect that Senate Republicans would vote to convict? At least a, a handful of them would vote to convict. Does that have to do with the difference between the, the two chambers or? Well, I mean, it's the base of each party is what it is. Re- Senate Republicans, their base wants them to acquit. House Democrats, even if they're a, in a swing district that is, you know, plus 10 Trump, their base where they get the core of their votes want them to impeach. And so everything is about base politics now. Um, You have to have your base behind you. Uh, There is no room for moderation. There is no reward from voters 
for compromise. And but, by the way, did you note the line in Trump's that rambling, unhinged letter he sent to Pelosi, you know, towards the end when he makes reference to even Jerry Nadler has a primary opponent? Is that why he's so pushing for impeachment? Of course, to pat ourselves on the back. We had that <laughs> primary opponent on Lindsey Boylan running against uh, Nadler, uh, arguing that he uh, was not strong enough on impeachment. And well, he kind of changed. I recall to, he sort of changed his tune a little bit yeah. when she started raising a ton of money on yes. impeachment. Yes, <laughs> so, that was exactly the point. Yeah. He had a primary opponent on his left. This is in the Upper West Side of New York, so you know how far left you can get. A Trotskyite yeah, or a Menshevik. Uh, <laughs> uh, raising money, hammering him for not being aggressive enough on impeachment. And sure enough, he began to speak up right after. And the rise of competitive primaries and the demise of party power means the party structure cannot protect incumbents from this kind of blowback from the base. But at the same time, here's my question when really this is going to Danny's question. If you're Mitt Romney, could you be in a safer position to vote your conscience than you are today? You're not up for re-election until 2024. You're in Utah where you're widely beloved. You clearly already have spoken out against Trump, so nobody will be surprised if you vote to convict. Or frankly, if you're Lisa Murkowski in, in I almost said Canada, in Alaska, <laughs> um, where you've always been known as an independent. Again, you voted against Kavanaugh. Why can't we expect them to do the same thing that these national security Democrats did? I think, we, I I think that's that. an absolutely fair question. And John, your analysis of, I don't have to tell you that your analysis of po party politics is completely correct. But I don't think that's sufficient excuse for someone like Romney or Murkowski, where you know they're smart enough to have considered this as fully as we'd want our senators to. We still don't know how they're going to vote, right? Yeah. I mean, they, have they either of them said? I think we know, Danny. I, I don't think we know. I think Romney is a potential vote for impeachment. Let's but not. Let's not. But I'm forget, not holding out hope. Let's not forget the Clinton impeachment vote when Arlen Specter. <laughs> Republican from Pennsylvania voted not proven as opposed to yeah. uh, the Tulsi Gabbard of 1990. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What? Well, she voted present. But anyway, she's a better surfer. Than she voted present because her argument was a house divided cannot stand. She was making a point about unity. Yeah. I think I mean, she was making either a point that, about yeah, we, getting that ship getting has a, sailed. Yeah. I think she ago. was making a point about anyway. getting a half a point, yeah. you know, more in the polls and right. immediately to make the debate stage. Exactly. Let's just speculation that Trump would the, already yeah. this morning there was speculation Trump would name her as his running mate in 2020. <laughs> All right, uh, I like that one, John, Alex. Thanks again, and we will have you guys back as the drama continues into the new for, year for the next impeachment. For the next impeachment. Yes. Thank you. All right. And now for a historical perspective on uh, Donald Trump's impeachment, uh, we are joined by Tim Neftali, Associate Professor of History at NYU and uh, the co-author of Impeachment and American History. Tim, welcome to Skullduggery. My pleasure. Great to be here with you, Mike and Dan. So, as you probably saw, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, today called this uh, the thinnest impeachment in American history. Is he right? If he means that the investigation was the shortest, 
I think it competed with uh, Andrew Johnson, one of Andrew Johnson's uh, impeachment efforts. After all, they tried a few times to impeach Andrew Johnson. If he's talking about the strength of the evidence behind the article, one article of impeachment, no. I mean, it, uh, it's a, there's a, a strong amount of evidence supporting Article 1. The challenge, of course, is that there are holes in the narrative. There, now, the holes don't create a lot of doubt about the impeachability of the conduct, the president's conduct, but they are holes nonetheless. And the reason for those holes is much less the time of the investigation and much more the fact that the president undertook a complete stonewall of the impeachment inquiry. Now, you said that there was um, compelling or strong evidence for Article 1. You didn't address Article 2, which is obstruction of Congress, which is new, a new wrinkle. We haven't seen an article of impeachment before that is crafted in just that way. And as you know, the point is made, hey, the Democrats could have gone to the courts. They could have gotten a favorable ruling from a federal judge that says the president's claims of privilege were unwarranted here, but they didn't do that. And so now one branch, the Congress, is saying the other branch, the executive, has violated uh, the Constitution of the United States by asserting privileges without any ruling by a federal judge that the Congress is right. Well, I'm, I'm going to respond by, by looking at the history. I'll leave the legal arguments to, to lawyers. Richard Nixon was impeached for inadequately complying with the inquiries, his inquiries, subpoenas. The uh, impeachment inquiry of 1974 did not go to the courts. The famous uh, Supreme Court decision of U.S. v. Nixon was with regard to materials requested by the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. And even before then, George Washington, I think in a very interesting uh, response to a request at the time of the Jay Treaty, or just, at, just around the time of the Jay Treaty, he was uh, the House requested documents about the Jay Treaty. There was a lot of opposition to the Jay Treaty, which is a treaty with, with Great Britain, uh, a lot of opposition by the uh, Jeffersonian Democrats. And they were thinking about withholding funding of sort of the implementation package of this treaty. And they wanted information about the way in which the treaty had been negotiated. And Washington writes back, look, you don't have a right to that information. It's the Senate that is my partner in um, foreign policy. I mean, the the, uh, the pr first president of the United States uh, very much had Alexander Hamilton's idea of the sort of the primacy of the art of this Article II institution, but he understood that the Senate had a role in confirming ambassadors and also in uh, confirming treaties. So he said, look, you're not the Senate. But he said, if this were an impeachment inquiry, that would be different because there the House has a right to request materials even outside of its, the normal purview of its oversight responsibilities. So Washington very early on reflects – I assume the thinking of the founders that there was something special about a congressional request in the context of an impeachment inquiry. So we have that on the record. And that means that this stonewalling by Donald J. Trump is not the same 
as stonewalling, run-of-the-mill stonewalling that always – or run-of-the-mill ne- negotiations that always occur between the executive branch and the legislative branch. We have those all the time, and we always have sort of a push-me-pull-you push situation where presidents, Republican or Democrat alike, alike will uh, claim executive privilege. That's a run-of-the-mill occurrence in our separation of powers uh, system. But Washington recognized, and I assume he recognized it because the founders, all of them recognized it, that there's something special about a request that's pursuant to an impeachment inquiry. So Donald J. Trump's decision to stonewall everything, I mean, he didn't even do the limited, the, uh, Richard Nixon's limited compliance. Uh, he didn't even he didn't even pretend to comply. That was unprecedented. And so I think the Congress needed to respond uh, in a in a tough way. And but was it was it huge... right was it right to forego going to court to get a judicial ruling and just go straight to we're going to invoke articles of impeachment uh, on this? Well, they had precedent on their side. What's the precedent? Um, I mean, if you were going to. It, well, in the, uh, Article Three uh, was passed by the House Judiciary Committee against Richard Nixon, which is about Richard right. Nixon not fully complying with the subpoenas. But look, at the end of the day, Nixon was impeached not for that. He was impeached because he was caught red-handed with the smoking gun tape and well, the no, obstruction no, 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 of no, justice. Wanna, right, well, the obstruction I, I wanna, of justice was clearly the the strongest article that the uh, House passed there. Well, the how, well, what's worth remembering, I think, and I know it's it's far in the midst of the past, but what's worth remembering is that Richard was that the Judiciary Committee passed in a bipartisan way three articles of impeachment before the revelation of the smoking gun transcript. They did it before the transcript was available, so there were there was a lot going on at the time. I wouldn't say that any of them were, was, the, was the strongest. I mean, the Article 2, which was the abuse of power article, that one involved the misuse of the IRS, and that raised a lot of hackles. The third article was the one about not complying. And I would say that it would be hard for me to imagine a president being removed from office simply for not responding to an inquiry. It has to be linked to another article. I cannot imagine a one-article impeachment, and that article would only be obstruction of Congress or contempt of Congress. So I agree with you that there has to be another article in the case of Donald J. Trump, but it's the article with regard to abuse of power. Now, now, but you're not going to get an argument from me about the value of getting more information and pushing for more information. One of the things I learned as director of the Nixon Library, to my dismay, was the extent to which there were still people and are still people who believe a counter-narrative about 1974. And that partly that's due to the fact that the documents and tapes that have come out since the Watergate crisis haven't been fully absorbed by a lot of the public. And so the fact that Richard Nixon, that the documents that incriminate Richard Nixon are even more numerous, and the tapes are even more numerous than was the case in 1974, isn't fully understood. So the case of the Ukraine scandal, I suspect as more materials come out, 
the strength and power of that particular uh, the argument that the majority in the House made will it'll 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 grow stronger. Now, why do I say that? I say that because if indeed there was exculpatory evidence that the president could use, we would see it. We would have it. He would have asked Mulvaney to testify. I don't know about Bolton because he can't really control Bolton. Uh, Bolton's decision making is is sui generis. But there are people in, the, in OMB underneath Mulvaney that could have testified. There are documents that Pompeo could have released. There are a lot of things that President Trump could have provided Congress if indeed there's a counter narrative that's substantiated by evidence and that exonerates him. But he didn't do that. So my assumption is the more we learn about the Ukraine matter, the greater the need to impeach the president. But, Tim, you you don't expect all of these things to come out on on the Democrats' timeline, which is a pretty – they're moving pretty swiftly here. Yes, and that's why I would have, but you know, no one asked. I, I mean, I, I understood. I mean, I, I, I don't. I'm not, I'm not inside the heads of the Democratic leadership, but my understanding, as I guess was true of everybody, was that somehow their timeline was linked to a set of assumptions they had about the, the, how impeachment would play uh, during the primary season, and so they wanted it out out of the way. I, I would have preferred a longer process. I don't by the way that said I'm not suggesting that the way the that the timeline made it unfair to President Trump I would agree that it was rushed and I would prefer the more material the better when it comes to impeachment but that's based on my having studied past impeachments and having actually witnessed years after the fact the amount of misinformation still in the public sphere about the Nixon experience. I mean, uh, I was shocked at the number of people. I mean, again, I was in Southern Orange County. I was obviously in an area where Richard Nixon has a, has a lot of sort of uh, support. I was shocked by the number of people didn't understand how enormous the case was and how watertight the case was against uh, President Nixon. Well, let me ask you this, because in Trump's ability to thoroughly stonewall this investigation and, and, and Congress, and to do so with, you know, kind of total impunity, it raises a question about the power of impeachment in this moment. And I'm just struck. I've been going back and reading the final days and looking at, of course, you know, Nixon wasn't impeached, but they did pass articles of, of impeachment in the Judiciary Committee. And it was imbued with such a sense of gravity. I mean, I was just yeah. reading that Peter Rudino, you know, after they voted, he was his whole body was trembling. He was weeping. He calls his wife and he says, uh, I pray that we did the right thing here. All of this has been so diluted because of polarization because of Trump's, you know, brazenness. Going forward, I mean, is is impeachment a powerful constitutional tool or has it been spent in some ways? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I I did last summer, I, I co-authored this book uh, with Peter Baker and Jeff Engel and John Meacham. And one of the things I did was I told the story, which uh, is a, a nice part of that story in Final Days, but I, I managed to get some diaries that, that uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh, didn't have access to at the time. And I, I told the story of how the Southern Democrats and the Republicans chose to vote against their constituents because there was a lot of support for Nixon. I mean, after all, he'd won a landslide victory in 1972. There was a lot of support for him in their districts, and they voted against their base, if you will, on the basis of the basis of the of the of the evidence. And one of the things, as as you mentioned, Peter Rodino 
worked very hard with a Republican named John Doerr, who oversaw a nonpartisan impeachment inquiry staff. They worked really hard to create a safe space for Republicans and Southern Democrats to be constitutionalists. I I keep mentioning the Southern Democrats because uh, the Democratic Party was certainly not united behind impeachment in the Nixon period. And the Southern Democrats had been, you know, they, they had been flattered and they got a lot of tension from Richard Nixon and he had a whole strategy to bring them over to the Republican Party. So it was, it was something to get them to vote for impeachment. In any case, the, the Democratic leadership worked hard to create uh, the right atmosphere for that open-mindedness. Well, we, we did not see that the, a similar atmosphere this time around. But there's a, another big difference and another similarity. The leadership of the Republican Party, as I discovered, there was a, a diary I could not have, I did not have access to last year, and Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward got got a few pages of it for the final days. But the entire diary was not open for research until last month, and I wrote a piece in the Atlantic that appeared two days ago, where I, I have this story. I have a story. Whose diary, of the Tim? Republican, are you talking about? Uh, Barbara Conable, who was in the Republican leadership, and I tell the story of what the Republican leadership was thinking during the Nixon period, and they were very, very cowardly. They knew that Nixon was unstable. Uh, was was uh, Nixon? Uh, Nixon was not fully focused on presidential matters in 1974, and the Republican leadership very much wanted him to resign. And they were they were sending uh, signals that he should consider resigning. Uh, There were some trial balloons in the spring of 1974, and um, the Republican rank and file went to the leadership and said, "Stop it! Don't do this. Our base does not want to hear this from us. We are going to suffer." If it looks like we're pushing the president out the door. And so the Republican leadership stopped and, in fact, put pressure on those few Republicans on the Judiciary Committee to defend the president. So there were some very, very similar pressures that bore upon Republicans in 1974 who wanted to be constitutionalists and to think about the case against Nixon without regard to party. So uh, oddly enough, there there are real similarities. Now, the difference is the nature of the evidence. The evidence was so overwhelming, and it was in the president's voice. You cannot underestimate the importance of the Nixon tapes in that impeachment. I do not believe, for example, that without the tapes, Richard Nixon would have been impeached. Richard Nixon would have easily finished his second term if he didn't have the taping system or if he hadn't destroyed the tapes. Why do I say that? Because the the Democrats didn't push for impeachment against Richard Nixon, despite everything that had been found by the Watergate special by the Watergate uh, the Senate Watergate Committee, despite despite John Dean's testimony, Democrats weren't pushing for impeachment until the Saturday Night Massacre, until Richard Nixon fired the Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox over access to the tapes. Well, you don't have any tapes. You don't have the firing of a special prosecutor. You don't have this firing of a special prosecutor. You don't have an impeachment process against Richard Nixon, despite information about the enemies list, despite uh, John Dean's testimony about the president, at least knowing about the cover-up in the spring of 1973. So I think that what you don't have today is you don't have the tapes. And I think it's very, very hard, very hard to have the kind of national consensus, which, by the way, came slowly in the Nixon case. People didn't like Nixon, 
absolutely true. His public opinion, <clears throat> his support was down to 25 percent, but they still didn't want to remove him. You don't get over 50 percent support for removing him until the you have this sort of mountain of evidence. So I really believe that impeachments are very difficult to obtain, and removals by the Senate are – I don't know if we'll ever see one without an enormous amount of material. We would have seen it in 74, but given the fact that the that impeachment was a remedy designed before we had parties, it takes an even higher standard for a party to remove a president of the same party. Never imagined that. So they give, never imagined that that would be a problem. Yeah, given the high bar and given the fact, as, as you said at the outset of this interview, that there are some significant holes in the evidence, was it the right thing to do to for the Democrats to aggressively uh, pursue impeachment? Well, they didn't aggressively pursue it after Mueller, and I agreed with that. I didn't feel that there was a case to be made that the American people would understand, and not because the American people can't understand uh, you know, sophisticated issues, but because the case was in volume two of Mueller, and it was a case of obstruction of justice. And I thought it would be very hard to explain to the American people why you would be uh, suggesting the removal of a president for obstructing an in inquiry that didn't have a provable underlying crime. Now, we know legally, I mean, lawyers will tell you, you can go to jail for obstructing an inquiry, even if the inquiry finds nothing wrong, because you just aren't allowed to obstruct the FBI or any other investigator. True. But we're talking here about a political process to remove a president. So so I would and I would argue that the Democrats, if they were aggressively pursuing impeachment, would have gone for impeachment to the leadership. I know some stragglers were going for it before, but the leadership would have gone for it after Mueller. They went on this approach as a result of the fact that the president had used the instruments of our foreign policy for personal gain. I understood from the get-go that foreign policy is an extraordinarily difficult area to explain to the American public. Most Americans have no emotional connection to it except with regard to obviously protection from, from foreign threats, foreign threats, that it, there wouldn't really be the same emotional reaction to a foreign policy Miscon foreign policy misconduct, as it would be uh, uh, if it were a domestic matter. Nevertheless, the question was, to me at least, should the House not pursue this, a plainly, a plausibly peach impeachable case, lest the Senate reject it? Should it just not do it? And I felt that given the fact that the whole impeachment system was put into place to maintain the balance of our constitutional institutions, that this was absolutely the right scandal to investigate as a possible impeachable offense. If you had let the so, – so even though I would – I never assumed that the Senate would remove this president on the basis of this, unless you would come up you know, with either a tape or four or five of his close associates actually turning on him and saying he made it clear to us quid pro quo, which I didn't think was likely, think he might have done that, but I don't didn't think it was likely that anyone would testify to that effect. I just assumed that it, this wouldn't end in a removal, but I feel that it would be uh, – on the part of the House, it would be a um, 
I would I felt that they were they would they would not be fulfilling their constitutional duties if they didn't react to this kind of abuse of power. We wanted to have you on for the historical perspective, and it's clear that uh, you know in times like this, uh, rhetoric gets uh, quite heated and uh, hyperbolic at times. We had the um, one of the constitutional law professors who testified said, uh, "If this is not impeachable, nothing is impeachable." You had Adam Schiff yesterday saying that you know our democracy may not survive unless. Uh, Donald Trump is impeached. But from the kind of sweep of uh, history, of American history, and the many abuses of power we have seen, Iran-Contra, a secret foreign policy run by Ronald Reagan to funnel uh, arms to, a, uh, to the guerrillas in Nicaragua against the ban by Congress to do so, George W. Bush's manipulation of intelligence to launch a war against a country, Iraq, that had not attacked us, uh, Frank, Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt selling arms to Britain in violation of the Neutrality Act passed by Congress. I mean, does this rank to you as an abuse that exceeds others by previous presidents who have not faced impeachment? Well, I'm always um, I'm always worried about hyperbole in the defense of, of an approach. And so uh, I remember very well Nixonians making the argument to me that other presidents have done this. They would say, you know, other presidents have done worse. And then they would talk to me about something that John F. Kennedy had done or purported to have done or something that LBJ may have done. And and my response to them was when it comes to impeachment, <clears throat> you take it presidency by presidency. And you ask yourself if this conduct by this president is a threat to the Constitution. You don't ask whether it's less of a threat or more of a threat than that which was done by an earlier president. Because by that standard, presidents could do almost anything they want and just say, well, look, <clears throat> it's not as bad as what X did in 19-whatever. And that worries me. It's a, there's a certain situational ethics, I think, that arises. So do I see other examples of abuse that are in the same category or, or, or greater? Oh, yes. I mean, Richard Nixon was a serial abuser of power. It's possible that Donald Trump is as well. And may, in fact, it's probably likely. But in terms of what's provable and what's in the article, we're really talking about one long example of it. I would say Iran-Contra is a fascinating case because there was criminality. The issue of impeachment, though, would have rested on what Ronald Reagan knew. If Ronald Reagan had masterminded this entire process and had been the one to think about taking the extra money made from Iran and using it for the Contras, yes, he would have had to have been impeached without a doubt. It was just very plausible given his management approach and just his, his, his general demeanor that he didn't know the details and in fact hadn't ordered this to be done and that's why he wasn't impeached. But certainly it was a grave challenge to our constitutional system. It just turned out the president wasn't really primarily the one at fault. Well, Tim, we could uh, we could go on uh, discussing uh, that and many other examples. Unfortunately, my co-host Danny has to catch a train, so we're going to um, call it quits for now, but definitely want to have you back as this uh, drama plays out into the new year. be my pleasure, and uh, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Mike, for inviting me to participate. Today. Thanks so much, Tim. 
Thanks to our Yahoo News colleagues, John Ward and Alex Nazarian, as well as Tim Naftali, former director of the Nixon Library, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.